This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the southernmost point of dawn to the lands of always winter, and what is west of west and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsock. Recording this late in the day on a holiday Friday edition and broadcasting at the time live on YouTube. Most of you are probably watching a little bit later. I'm just springing this on everybody, just saying hello. All right, today we are going to be catching up with questions. Here's what's going on I've been doing the big Game of Thrones rewatch, and we're not just uh, we're not just re-watching the show and doing a review and, and looking back. We are going deep into the themes. We are going deep into the lessons, the favorite moments, and the things that I feel make the show stand the test of time. Regardless of feelings of how it ended or where it went, there's a large group of fans that have not left the story because they haven't left the books. They haven't left the maps. They haven't left talking about what this show does to you as a fan. So that's why we're doing it. But what's been happening is I have uh, I was recording the show on a weekly basis, putting it here on YouTube with the Casually Talk crew and, and others. And then I started, uh, my, my schedule got a little jumbled. And there's a rhythm to uh, you if you're listening, uh, if you're a listener of the show, you know when to maybe get some calls in to put them on air. And we uh, have calls about specific episodes. Well, by the time we hit season two, I was starting to uh, record things out of order, and I have been. We're, we're about halfway through on episodes that I've recorded. So what, I think, what I'll do right now, it's a holiday weekend, too. You got you got other things to do. I think I'll put out this uh, quick episode. I think I am putting out this quick episode, just catching up with some of the great questions that have been brought to the Casterly Talk page on Anchor. Uh, we got some great ones. We got some. Uh, always get some regular callers checking in with their great theories, their what ifs, um, adding to thoughts me or guests uh, have had on the themes and lessons, bringing their own to the table, and I just love that stuff. So I don't want to feel like anyone's cheated out there. Some great questions that uh, I didn't get till after I recorded the episode uh, on season uh, two, episode one, season two, episode two, so on and so on. We've, like I said, got uh, halfway through in the can, and uh, that is, uh, you know, it's gonna, be, you know, I don't, I don't, I just don't want you to feel uh, left out. So it's a casual show here. I got some questions uh, that uh, you know what? I, a lot of times I'll try to listen ahead of time and research. 
write down notes. Um, I got to get that chair fixed. You hear that chair? I, I've been in a battle with the seller of a replacement chair. Long story. We'll, we'll say that on the Knapsack Files. We'll, we'll tell that story. Uh, so you're going to get a squeaky chair every now and then. It's just, it's, just, it's just life. I feel like Tyrion in the small council chamber. Just make noise with my chair. We also got some people watching uh, live. Uh, not, a, not a lot. Like I said, just kind of sprung this show on everyone here on a Friday night. Not normally what we do, go live. Ranger Donald is watching right now. Christy McGee. So if any of them have questions about the first couple episodes of season two about of Game of Thrones, or just in general about Game of Thrones, we'll, we'll go into that. Uh, I'll gladly answer them. Uh, taping this, of course, for posterity, be released here on the Casterly Talk podcast feed. All right, we got Jonathan with this question. Going back to episode 10 of season one. I actually uh, had recorded that one a little bit ahead of time. So Jonathan's call didn't get in, and uh, I like this call. And Jonathan's been just hitting some great home runs here in the phone calls into the Anchor app. So let's play this one here from our pal, Jonathan. Hey, Kenny Castley Talk. This is John. Um, this message may be a, might be a little bit repetitive. I'm sure you've – because, Ken, you've already talked about a lot of these, ep- these uh, moments from this past season. But for me, I kind of wanted to give my thoughts – and maybe hear some other experiences or thoughts as well. So for my first watch through the Game of Thrones, unfortunately, I was spoiled about Ned's death. So that moment of this of this season didn't quite hit as much as it should have emotionally. So for my personal experience, the, the biggest emotional impact was Danny emerging with the dragons. At that point, I had no idea dragons were in the show. And it was just such a like huge WTF moment, such a twist. And went from me liking the show a lot to absolutely falling in love with the with this show of course it's a lot of surface level stuff but maybe for everyone else or ken too what are some moments from this first season that still stick out to you on the rewatch that you absolutely love and maybe what are some moments that have uh maybe shine brighter on the rewatch thanks for your thoughts appreciate it thanks john for the call yeah looking back on uh, the ned stuff and the D- daenerys stuff at the end of season one and here's what i'll, I'll say especially going back now uh this is why i've been just enjoying uh, you know that all eight seasons of the show uh, and i can't wait to finish the the story in the books of course uh but to, to go back in the show go back to the to the beginning it's definitely i think it's long been a case when you go back to season one that uh, the last goodbyes and the last moments a lot of the people have to, together but what i do love let's t- i want to talk about the the D- daenerys moment uh, the return of magic, and that was big, and, and I that was that was a lot of hope. I think you know the 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 passing of Ned to say nicely uh, was a gut punch to a lot of people, a gut punch in a, the greatest of ways. It's historic for reason in, in terms of just television, and yet it happened uh, many 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 years earlier in the book world, but it changed the game, and we've talked a lot about that. But without a doubt, it was a punch to the gut. It was a punch to the heart. Good old wrestling, pro wrestling uh, heart punch move. Big bully Busick used to close out matches with that. Uh, so it hurt. It hurt. It really hurt. And I think looking back now, going to to season one and episode ten, and what uh, goes on with Daenerys, I, I gotta tell you, it's it's a big, it's a big pile of hope. It's a big pile of wow this show just ripped my heart out but we got this going forward which again is why it hurts where it ends up going uh and where it ends up 
uh, which is fine. I think a little pain is okay. A little pain is good. Uh, so I, I go back to to a lot of that stuff. Uh, Tyrion finding his footing and Tyrion's uh, step out of, of who he was at the time when we meet him at the beginning of season one. We immediately like him. We immediately are, you know gravitate towards him. But he's a Lannister, and, and you're trying to figure out the, the lay of the land, and, and you haven't really got to a ton of the layers with Cersei and Jaime yet. I think they're there. I think they're president season one. But to be part of House Lannister, you're immediately kind of cast as a bad guy. But so going back and just seeing the journey he goes on and seeing the journey he ends up uh, having, uh, I uh, and, and the moments with him and John, I, I really love going back to season one and just... Tyrion and John on the way to the wall, Tyrion and John at the wall, and building that trust, building that connection, and see where it plays. Uh, but then, uh, John, going back to the Daenerys moment, yeah, it, 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 it caught me off guard, which it really, when you watch it in 2011, you kind of should have seen it coming, not just as the actual detail of Danny and the dragons, but just, you know, who she was and who she was going to set out to, to try to be and be uh, for, for all intents and purposes. Uh, it, the signs are all there, obviously, from the infamous, uh, I always call it the infamous like bath moment in the pilot where Danny walks in and it's hot and everything. You don't, if you don't pay attention to that, you're not ready to pay attention to those details on season one way back in 2011 or whenever you first watched the show. Wherever you find the books or if you find the books is, is obviously a different conversation. So um, I, I think, uh, you know, it all leads to just such a hopeful moment and a great way to end season one, and it stands out. Uh, we got new people watching live. Zach Anderson's watch, watching live. Will McClain says, uh, how far are you on the rewatch series? I feel way behind. We are in season one, Will, so you have time to catch up. Uh, we got reviews, discussions of uh, episode three of season two, episode four, and episode five are currently in the can. Uh, they'll be out here through December. So into January, we'll finish up season two, and you can get a call in then. Done along. He's got some go- uh, great calls coming in. Um, but he's got this question here. Reading the book version of it long after watching the episode, I'm glad they didn't make her lose her hair. Yeah, that is one of the little changes. Uh, they didn't burn the wig off, uh, which I'm okay with. Uh, it is, It is. you kind of, there's definitely some questions of how do you walk into that pyre and not lose your hair. But, uh, you know, it's uh, you can just go like this. It's, it's, Tar- it's Targaryen hair. Christy McGee says, hey, the passage of Ned haunts the entire first season for me whenever I rewatch. Uh, really left its mark on me. I think that's a great point, too, when you go back and the horror of, of knowing what's coming. Um, for Casterly Talk, I'm in the middle of a season two rewatch. Uh, Grace and I just on our own kind of gone ahead. We're well into season five. And there's a lot of moments uh, where, where Grace will kind of say, like, is that that's their last time seeing each other. Not, ju- not just season one Stark stuff, but just other characters along the way. And it's like, yeah. That is, or they don't see each other there. That, and that kind of haunts you. What happens haunts you. So going back to season one and just every decision Ned makes, everything about um, Ned, right or wrong, stubborn or, or righteous in his decisions, it, it can't haunt you. I can't haunt you. Um, Jim W. asks, uh, we meet Davos in season two, and he is good. He is good. Did you have any idea... He would make it all the way to the end. I, yeah, I love Davos. Davos and Jorah were my guys I was really hoping to go all the way. 
meet you all the way. Um, but I, I never had hope for Jorah. And eventually, you know, you start reading. I start to, you know, I, I got through book five well before the end of the show. So you had kind of an idea, but obviously the show moved past that. And obviously the show set the tone early on of making the decisions it needed to to tell its story. So I was never confident that Jorah was going to make it. I do remember there was, uh, what is it, season three? Yeah, season three, we got the, the episode is titled, uh, what episode is where, where, where Jamie and, and Bran and the bear, and, and, and it, so the episode, long story short, is titled The Bear and the Maiden Fair. And I remember texting a friend of mine uh, and just saying, Jorah goes, right? That's the episode, The Bear and the Maiden Fair. The bear's Jorah, Danny's the Maiden Fair, uh, you know. From a certain point of view. Uh, And I thought, he's gone. He's gone. And she knew the answer was no. She hadn't seen that episode, obviously, but knew that, you know, most likely Jorah was going to be okay. She didn't let me, but she didn't tell me. She didn't tell me. She let let me twist in the wind about it. For Davos, after a while, it just made sense to me that a character like Davos and, and, and a character like Tyrion, among others, but those characters kind of had, uh, they were part of the show's moral center. I think that's one of the valuable things about Davos Seaworth is, yeah, I'm a Stannis Baratheon fan, but when you, you know, Stannis is hard to love. He's hard to love. But you do love Davos. And when you see Stannis through Davos's eyes, especially when he's uh, at the Iron Bank and kind of, uh, you know, kind of just kind of laying his heart on the line for Stannis and who he is. I like it. I, I believe in it. But it's part of the complications of it. It's part of the, you know, the Battle of Blackwater Bay works so well. And we haven't got there yet in the review. So this is probably something we'll talk about even more. But the Battle of Blackwater Bay, you have two factions that you don't completely root for, but you're definitely not completely rooting against. Tyrion is leading the defense of King's Landing. Well, you want that to be successful for him. You kind of like Braun. Sansa's back there. You you want her safe. Cersei, eh, but you know, you get the she's planning to kill Tommen. You're not necessarily rooting for that. So you can't root against them. And then on the other side, you got Stannis, and a lot of you might not like Stannis. A lot of, a lot of you might not want Stannis taking King's Landing. You would have wanted Renly. Or others, but here comes Stannis, and I don't, I don't think you completely root against him because Davos is there, and that's what the show does time and time again so well. Yes, originates from the, the stories told in the books. Totally, uh, I always feel I need to add that in, lest someone will shake a finger at me. But uh, we, I enjoy engaging with the show and the story presented on the show. So that's the thing with Davos. So I got to say, I, um, I do, I never really, well, I don't want to say never really doubted whether or not, uh, you know, Davos was going to stay around. I just, I, I had the sense that him and Tyrion are part of just this, part of the fabric of, of the, the show's heart, that if you take them out, uh, you, you don't have that moral center. So there you go. On that, so great question, Jim. Ranger Donald says, I had no idea about the White Walkers, so very first thing I see about the show was a zombie, and I was like, real zombies? <laughs> I can't. Uh, thanks to Seven, I kept going. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't, Ranger Donald, I don't, if I had, I didn't know anything going into the pilot uh, at all. 
uh, other than whispers of a story some friends of mine had read, but I didn't know. And so I was expecting, I guess I was expecting, you know, a little Lord of the Rings vibe. So you might have some magic, you might have some wizards. I, I, I was totally there for that. As I said before, I was hooked right then. Who, ice zombies, what's happening? I have no idea what I'm seeing. And then it doesn't go, go back to that. You go to the credits and then the credits kind of pull you, pull you in. And holy moly, like you don't go, you're not dealing with the ice zombies. Not really. You're, you're talking about it. But no one's dealing with it. You're dealing with the politics. You're dealing with the characters. You're dealing with the personalities. And so it's like, okay, something's going on. And I loved it there. So uh, there we go. Um, Zach Anderson checking in live. Uh, says, uh, just started reading Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, which is a, an officially endorsed casterly talk choice. Check it out. Um, no affiliation. I get nothing for recommending this book, but Entertainment Weekly's James Hibbert put out this great book, Fire Cannot Kill Dragon. Easy read, oral history style. That's great. We've been talking about it a lot here, but if you're watching live or watching on YouTube uh, and you haven't seen before, yeah, I don't want to over-repeat myself, but it's a great book. Zach Anderson says, my favorite part was so far was the description of the real-life relationship of Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie and how it translated into their performances in the show. Yeah, love, love will keep us together. Yeah, it's great. Uh, Grace and I, in watching season two and three and into four, the sadness of the end there, but yeah, you kind of have some uh, moments, and, and it worked, man. Uh, it's, it's scary sometimes when those actors have chemistry. That's what happens. One of the things that was fascinating to be, it was revealed in that book, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, is uh, uh, Ramsey and Theon. Uh, on camera and off, they they were close. They were they you know, had a good, interesting dynamic. They were friends, uh, but the dynamic would be in play out and about at bars or something like that. And Theon uh, Alfie Allen was still uh, kind of submissive, and it just how it kind of messed with his brain a little bit. There, love that kind of stuff. All right, we got another call here. This one's from our pal Eric Monroe. Hey, Ken and Casually Talk. So season two, my personal favorite season, and of course I was very heavily invested in who was going to play Stannis Baratheon, given my love and fascination with his character in the book, and I heard it was going to be Stephen Delane. I most recently had seen him in John Adams, um, where he played Thomas Jefferson. He was wonderful in it, so I was like, you know, you know, that could work. So the first scene was fine, but it was that second scene when he's giving his royal proclamation, and he says, you know what, make it Sir Jamie Lannister to Kingslayer. That was the moment I said that is Stannis, and I absolutely agree with Stannis. The throne was his by right. They're all thieves. They should all bend the knee to him because once Robert died, he was the king, in my opinion. I support his claim. Um, Starry episode, definitely Stephen Delane. But if you want to mention Carice Van Helton and Liam Cunningham as well, I can live with that because, after all, they are Team Stannis. Team Stannis, indeed. Eric Monroe checking in. He's on Team Stannis with me. Now and forever. But Eric agrees with me. Some of the value of Stannis as a character is the lessons you learn from him. But this was a call that Eric intended to uh, have uh, have me play on our discussion of season two, episode one. And yeah, you 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 that season this season has the um, you know the high the 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 very hard <laughs> very difficult to reach task uh, of building off of season one. For a general audience that was still growing and still interested and word of mouth was was definitely affecting the, the popularity of the show and more people were tuning in. But now you have to come in and and deliver on the promises and, and also create new characters and storylines for everyone to get involved with and, and involved with. 
And I'll say this, you know, I mean, because they're keeping to um, the story laid out uh, at this point from George R. R. Martin and Clash of Kings and everything. We we heard Stannis be mentioned, um, and you got the idea that Stannis was not loved. And to finally see him, he's got the uh, the red priestess, and and uh, you know, uh, fires burning. And I love that opening sequence. I think it's valuable, but I think. Uh, it, 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 you know, again, they were going to do it. It was part of the story. But it, I always thought it is kind of risky that you're like, cool, you love season one of Game of Thrones. We're going to introduce an entire new uh, arc and set of characters. And it's Dower Stannis. It's not going to be popular. And he's over there saying the Iron Throne is mine by right. And, you know, it, it was. But also, you know, power, power, you know, power is power. Um, and uh, power lies where men believe it lies. So that the all everything we learned from uh, Renly and and Stannis uh, in their little interactions in the parlay is um, is um, is about that, and Stannis has to face that. And Stannis is very frustrated, uh, and that's why I was drawn in by him. I always refer, refer to it as the prodigal son's brother syndrome. He's done everything right, and yet no one seems to care, and he can't see the reward that might come his way or can't see what he's got, can't see what he actually has earned. And Melisandre comes along and says, don't worry, I'll, I'll help you get what you earned because I see great things for you. Um, I think in order for that really to work, you had to find someone like Stephen Delane. And yeah, there's a, he, you know, Stephen has said there's some quotes that we, we've talked about often here that he, uh, the idea he wasn't a huge fan of the show or he did it for money. Nothing, you know, and that that's true from a certain point of view, but there's also enough evidence out there that, that, that Steven's just, uh, he's an actor who's there to act. He's not there for the hoopla and he did everything needed and more for the show and didn't have a problem with it and, and committed. It did what five seasons. That's a long, that's a long time for someone who might not have liked the show. So he must've liked it on some level. And the book Fire Cannot Kill Dragon does go into Stephen Delaney. There's nothing, not much. If there is, I can't recall. Maybe there's a couple things, but there's nothing from Stephen Delaney. Clearly, no comment. Doesn't want to talk about it. But his the performers do. Uh, Gethin Anthony talks about being at the scene with him, and there is kind of an intimidation fast factor. And, and and Liam Cunningham says, "Look, so he says that I'm paraphrasing, but Liam Cunningham says in that book." There's a lot of things that are said that are like unfair about Stephen Delane. Uh, he's a great actor, generous actor, and great to be in scenes with and all that stuff. And it shows. But I think it was a great choice um, coming off of John Adams, where I did. Uh, I, I'm like Eric. I just seen him in John Adams as Je- Thomas and Je- Thomas Jefferson, and thought he was spectacular. And so I think he was a perfect choice, inspired choice. And brought himself into that role and that uh, intimidation factor. So again, I, I'm rambling about Stannis, but I just love um, I love the choice. I love the choice that they were going to say, "Look, here we go. You're going to get this big plot, and you're not going to necessarily root for this guy, but we know we're gonna we're gonna make it work." And again, Davos is key to that. Um, but here's the story of Stannis and what the what's what are the lessons. You can take from it. Uh, Jim W has another follow up question here. What do they know about the Greyjoy rebellion? Like, how far did they get until they were defeated? It was only Ned and North involved, which is why Theon was taken as president. Uh, no, a lot of other people involved. Um, 
Uh, a lot of other people involved. It's, it's been a while since I've studied the actual, you know, beat by beat facts of this stuff. So you can go find some great stuff on YouTube on the Great Joy Rebellion. They were good, man. I mean, they they're the kings, kings and queens of the sea uh, for sure. And, and uh, they've, they've got some big victories. But yeah, you cracking out of water. It's a problem. So uh, Baylon Greyjoy, his people definitely probably uh, behind him on, on the rebellion. But it was, um, what does Tyrion say early on when he meets Theon at uh, Winterfell? Uh, when Theon's kind of bragging, he's like, well, then this, the rebellion was stupid. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, uh, probably true. So anyways, uh, yeah, Jim, uh, I have to refresh my brain on the exact details. But I love, they do tie into that history of... Um, uh, Pike and the, the breaching into the walls at Pike and Thoris Amir with his flame and sword. Who, of course, we meet what season three. Uh, Jorah being there, Jamie, uh, Jorah Cassell. Uh, um, great history there to that kind of stuff. So, uh, look it up, man. That's what I love about this show, too. It'll inspire you to, to study uh, the history of uh, what's going on here. Got this call from Billy. Hey, Ken, it's Billy. Sorry if this is too late to make it into the episode about episode one of season two, but I just wanted to call in saying I really enjoyed the episode. It's awesome to go back and see these smaller character moments that you kind of forget about over time. And perhaps the biggest one that stuck out to me, there was two actually, but the biggest one I think is the moment between Cersei and, oh God, Joffrey, when uh, she slaps him and you can see the fear in her eyes and she looks down, she can barely even look at him because she is truly afraid for her life. She knows the kind of evil that her son can commit. And it was kind of, it was interesting to see a moment. I don't know if it's compassion, goodness, or what it was from Joffrey where he's like, hey, don't ever do that again. Like there's something like, there's still a connection between him and his mother, which I don't know if it diminishes over time or if it's kind of constant, but it was interesting to see a little goodness come from Joffrey. That's a, that's an interesting way to describe it, Billy. Billy's always got great calls and, and you give me pause to think about Joffrey in that moment. I love that scene. And the scene he's talking about, of course, is, is Cersei slapping Joffrey in the, the Red Keep while Joffrey's having it remodeled. After Joffrey just kind of goes in on her, on the rumors about her and Uncle Jamie and the bastards, which leads to um, the end of the episode with all the bastards of Robert being erased, to put it kindly. Uh, something that comes from Joffrey on the show. Uh, I love that scene because I really do feel, and I, I did say it on the discussion, but I really do feel that's one of the final moments that Cersei has a handle on Joffrey, has control of Joffrey. And it's a, a testament, uh, a theme of motherhood, of, of, of whatever it might be, but it, but it is the moment uh, to me where, where he, Billy uses compassion, kindness. I just think he, there's something there. There's still, that's still his mother. Um, but she might have broke the chain there for him too, not just uh, the other way around. I, I, I definitely think she no longer can control him. And yes, obviously you could argue she'd already lost control. The beheading of Ned was part of that. That's why Tyrion is sent back. But you take this scene and put him up, up against the scene where she's kind of uh, healing his injury, working on his his uh, wolf bite after the King's Road incident and talking about uh, giving him lessons and listening to him, let him vent. And even though Joffrey's kind of a little pill there, he uh he's still listening he, he's still he's still 
under her wing. And that's no more. And this is the moment where I think it does break for good. Yeah, Zach Anderson says it in the live chat. I think the slap of Joffrey is when she realizes that she lost control of him. And, you know, and her, uh, Lena Heaton plays it so well. Obviously, she plays everything well. Plays everything amazing and perfect in my uh, point of view. Just the head down, nose, oopsie, just on a, just on a raw level of slapping the king. Not good. But also, I, I kind of take it as a read as, as she knows the moment's broke, too. She knows she might have just broken it. Uh, she was holding on. Holding on. Ranger Donald says Joffrey couldn't be controlled until Tywin, but even he knew he can't fully handle it. Yeah, that's a great point about Tywin. You got the great scene of Tywin and Joffrey wanting to be counseled. You are being counseled at this very moment. I love that scene. Charles Dance stepping up those stairs. The final turn of uh, after he tells Joffrey where to put it and just, oh, your grace. I love that moment. Absolutely one of my favorites. Uh, but yeah, Tywin, I think Tywin was, Tywin was smart enough to know that um, he he might have had control, but only for so long. Not that he wanted him dead or removed, but just they had to do something there. So um, love that call there. We got uh, Mark from Feeding the Monster. Mark's going to be actually on Casterly Talk. In, what is it now, two episodes, uh, breaking down and looking back on Season 2, Episode 4, The Big Themes and Lessons. Let's hear Mark now, though, a call that came in just after I recorded an episode review. Hello, Ken and everybody. Lots to unpack in this Season 2 premiere, but something that stood out to me in this rewatch, and I haven't gone back to this one in a long time, but when we meet Melisandre, and Stannis Baratheon and everyone over there on Dragonstone, Melisandre, during the burning of the gods ceremony that she's performing, uh, she starts chanting certain words, and she mentions that the stars will bleed and that the dead will rise in the north. She predicts what happens later, the army of the dead, which makes me wonder, do you think Melisandre was in the know the entire time before she looked into the flames and saw Stannis fighting in the snow because she says admittedly she was wrong about all that but do you think she knew that the army of the dead was on the march even back then look let's just dive into this kind of um, talking about it I like focusing on the themes and the lessons and asking why about all the characters choices and so we'll try to answer that a little bit here uh, yeah, we got it. We got a comment in the sky that everyone uh, believes they have a opinion on. Uh, you know, or everyone does have an opinion on that comment and what it means. OSHA kind of is the one that uh, is right, or at least mostly right. Uh, uh, you know, red comet can only mean one thing: dragons. But to hear this, this was a great poll from Mark. There is a big question just going in world into the show world, but into the story overall about. The religions that are true, the religions that work, the religions that might uh, have more importance to the actual story. And I think Melisandre and everyone else who serves the Lord of Light has enough evidence to say that maybe they 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 got they're, they're in tune with something real or something more. Seven pointed star, seven gods, all the stuff. Nah, I don't know about that. Old gods, Lord of Light. I think those are connected. I mean, at least, and the God of Death. Let's not forget, the God of Death is the only one that we know is 100%. 
So the idea of Melisandre knowing when we now you know we know she she was uh, you know a little older than her driver's license said. Um, I I think she could have. I think there's a lot of faith that she needed to employ to to believe in all this uh, and, and and to not just you know to it's passed down in her religion. This is the battle against the great other. This uh, this is the the battle against. Uh, Ice. It's fire and ice. And I think she believes. And I wonder if if the why of that is is if you think you believe or are you are you going to make mistakes and, and, and pressure yourself into that? I think, and maybe it's because I'm a Stannis Stan, I think she believed in Stannis Baratheon. But by the time Jon Snow enters the picture and she... Gives them that look across the flames at Winterfell, or excuse me, uh, at, um, not Winterfell, at Castle Black. And kind of lets them know, she knows something, because she's dropping the you-know-nothing Jon Snow uh, line that mm, only she wouldn't know. Uh, I, 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 I tend to believe that she did know, did know in general what was coming. Which is why, again, the, the pressures of it, why she, she forced herself into a situation where this, I have to believe this man. She believes in this fight. I think in the end, she, she, her belief in the fight pays off and it pays off for everyone. She returns to serve her purpose and die in this land. And I think her, I think the, the, the long night episode being framed, uh, you know, with her story coming to a head there. I th- it's one of my favorite things on se- in season eight, and I do love the character, uh, and I love where it goes. She she, she was rewarded, and everyone, everyone else was rewarded for that belief. So I think going back to this first moment, is she throwing a, a dart at the prophecy board? Maybe. You got, you got a comet in the sky, but she's pretty specific about the dead rising. So, uh, yeah. I think I think you might be right, Mark. I think I think there's some knowledge there, and what that knowledge does to her might be part of the lesson. Ranger Donald says, "I think she got the bullet points, but not the full picture, so she had to interpret what she saw." Yeah, and I think that's fair. And again, prophecies in Game of Thrones are meant to be uh, kind of changed uh, changed around here. So we got a couple questions actually from our good friend uh, Ranger Donald, as we call him around these parts. Donald Long with some. Uh, Book to show changes and a GOT Thanksgiving dinner invite. Hey, Cashew Talk. Just want to get your opinions on two book to show changes that they make in this episode that I think work for the better. The first one we learned that is Joffrey who gave the order to kill Robert's bastards instead of Cersei like it was in the books. Which to me, so far, has the characters been presented. I could totally see Joffrey giving that order. While we to- Cersei is totally not heartless, I don't see her yet giving the orders to kill random babies in the streets. The second being the name change between Asha and Yara. I think I like the name Yara better, but I'm going to opinions. Thanks. Uh, sorry, that one cut off a little bit. Let me keep going here with uh, Ranger Donald. Hey, Cash, we talk. With Thanksgiving here in the U.S. this week, if you could somehow magically invite the Game of Thrones characters through a Thanksgiving dinner, who would you invite? I don't name all of them I would invite, but a couple would be Daenerys, of course. But also Cersei and Tyrion for the choice in wine that they could bring. But also the typical family, Thanksgiving family drama that they bring along with. But also the family 
hot pie. I can always count on him to help me out in the kitchen or to bring something really nice to eat. Thanks. All right. Who uh, who would you invite to your Thanksgiving Game of Thrones meal? First, let's go to the book to the show changes. I, I do like the... I do like the change, and I, 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 some some book changes and show changes. It's it's totally fine because both are both work for me on, on separate stories. So, um, Cersei being upset enough and wanting to remove remove any, you know, any threat to her power, any threat to Joffrey's place on the throne, and protecting her secret and just kind of vengeance uh, it works for me, works for me in the books. I I can get behind that. Um, but in the show, I, there's something going to what we were talking about, about Cersei losing control. And so the fact that it is believed by us, the audience, that, that Cersei did this. And we learned from Janice Slint, at least from Jan, Janice Slint's reaction to Tyrion, that, you know, it, it wasn't, and it was Joffrey. I think it, it, it's more valuable to the story, and it's more valuable to a character that was going to stay around longer, that she didn't do it, that she lost control of Joffrey, and and he's um, you know spiraling out of control more and more and more, and that even she wouldn't do this. It it maintains that one thread, that one powerful thread of, of Cersei, for better or worse, believe it or not, is a good mother and values her children and values that. It's the only thing she has, and, and she draws upon that often, all the way through um, the very end of the show, even when she she may have been expecting another. You know, So I think it works for me in, in the show because that's what my thing about the book-to-show changes. I think that can be something that works very well in the book, and you have time to explain it in a different way. You have time to dive into even more the nuances. I think the show needs to find the 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 lanes to stick in uh, emotional lanes to drive the story forward and i think that's that is something that they draw upon a lot again cersei and being a mother cersei in a protective nature cersei what she would do for her children even more than her family name even more than jamie it's her children she will burn cities to the ground i will not let that happen uh she says all those kind of things um she gets it's it's a thrilling, so it works for me a little bit better. I I I I keep going back, and I've talked about it a lot as we review season two. I, I really love Clash of Kings as a book. I just think the show had a chance to go back and thin it down and thin it down and just really drive the story forward. That is not a, a critique of Clash of Kings. How could I? I can't could, could critique that. It's it's, it's a spectacular story. It's just, there's so many, the story starts to explode and go to different directions by book two. Uh, the show just had to drill down on some things and, and, and make it simple, you know. Uh, all right, regarding uh, Thanksgiving, Robbie Meeson, who are you going to invite to the GOT Thanksgiving table? Robbie Meeson says, Lord Frey. What's he going to eat? What are you going to serve him? Uh, Jib W says, so you're inviting Stannis and Jorah, 100%. Yeah, look, I'm going to, tr- I would try not to invite all the grumpy old men in Game of Thrones I like. I don't know if the limit on it, but, you know, if it's like a four, if, if, if it's a four person party, uh, five including me, Tyrion's got to come. I, come on. He's a drinker, he's a talker, and he's an entertainer. You, you know, look at the stuff of him. Season six, telling jokes to Missandei and Grey Worm. He drinks. He knows things. 
he might dominate the conversation a little bit, but you don't mind. I'll take I'll take him. Um, hot pie is a great answer from Donald Long. That's that's his answer. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that. I I I almost want to say Varys. I don't know what you're gonna get what you're gonna get from Varys, but Varys is very charming. Conleth Hill is very funny, so maybe it's confusing that. But I gotta imagine if if Varys is off the clock, and he never is off the clock, but I gotta imagine he'd be kind of fun at, at the dinner table to sit and have a conversation with. I'd say Renly. Renly's a good choice for me. Um, I think I almost want to say Marjorie Tyrell as as well. Not not coupled with Renly. You don't need but uh Renly is you can see people like him, so that works. Marjorie, I think I think some of the moments where she's not playing the game, I think she's f- funny, witty. She, uh, uh, you know, around the table. Now, oh, oh gosh, it just it just made me think about Elena Tyrell. I think I would want to have Elena Tyrell there, I think. But that might not go well. It might be one of the things like, you're like, yes, I want Elena there. Then she starts just cutting into your choices at, uh, of what you're serving. Starts telling, telling it like it is about the silverware or your house or you or your friends. And then you might have some problems. So I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Uh, regarding some of the grumps, Stannis, Jorah, I, you know, I love those. I love those guys because in many ways they're, they represent parts of me. I don't want to have dinner with me. I'm not a fun dinner guest. So I, I'm, I'm dour. I'm quiet. I concentrate on the food. I'll do that. I need people around me to be a little lively. Now, which is why I definitely think I want Yorin. I definitely think I want Yorin there. Yorin, Yorin and Roz. Rest in peace, Roz. Yorin, Roz, Tyrion, Varys. That might be the that might be the uh, that might be the the Game of Thrones GOT dinner guest list. Podrick there singing might be there as well. Mark Myers here. Yeah, Mark, uh, we played uh, your call. We're catching up with calls, Mark. And uh, Mark uh, will be, like I said, on the show in two weeks, breaking down uh, episode four of season two with me there. Uh, Ranger Donald, uh, regarding his own question, says, John can go either way. Uh, he can be a lot of fun, but then be, of course, brooding. Yeah. What is that, that Seth Meyers sketch uh, where they have John John Snow at the dinner table there? Don, John Snow at a house party? Yeah, just at a dinner party? It didn't go well. I don't think I'd do that. I don't think I want that. You you got to find uh, who's good in conversation, man. Uh, a couple more uh, calls here. We got this one from Billy again. Hey Ken, it's Billy. The big theme of season two, episode two for me was the theme of friendship. There's notable examples throughout the season with setting up friendships or introducing characters or hinting at what's to come. But the biggest example of friendship in my eyes was Yorin protecting Arya and Gendry from the King's guard. Obviously at the time he thought he was protecting Arya and he's so it's one thing to pull Arya from King's landing and try to ship her away. And it's another thing to directly go up against the King's men and take arms against them. So that just really, that was a powerful example of friendship because that's how much Benjen means to Yorin and vice versa, I guess. And it, it just really stuck out to me. Yorin's such an underrated character. I don't think about him a lot when I think about game of Thrones and I just want to give a quick shout out to Jon Snow for that absolute fist pumping moment at the end when he heard the baby scream and he just ran right towards danger. It was amazing. All right, there you go. I agree with Billy. A lot of friendship, connections, loyalty. 
there's honor on a big level in Game of Thrones, but honor on a micro level, on, on a small, more intimate one-on-one level, it works. And 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 Yorin is a great character. Francis McGee, I always shout him out. He's he's so good. He has a brief, brief part in Rogue One. I wouldn't wouldn't have minded him having a little bit more to say. He's a rebel, uh, rebel soldier. Uh, but yeah, there there is a there's a connection there, a uh, 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 a friendship. Um. That that uh, that is there because of Benjamin. It's 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 an honor to 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 a, a code that uh, you know Ari and Gedry don't even understand. So that's all the way through um, that as well. Uh, and and f- friendship is funny. We we talk a lot of. I'm glad Billy brought that up because we talk a lot about uh, these big themes and lessons in Game of Thrones. But sometimes it's down. Your own honor, and it wasn't your honor that brought you back, uh, says Jor Mormont to Jon Snow about Pip, Gran, and Sam. But that's friendship, too. That's that's the, the power of that relationship, the importance of that relationship. And in this world where who you don't know, you're, you know, you don't get a lot of uh, people around you. You don't have a lot of people around you you can trust. Look around you. We're all liars here. Everyone better at it than you. Like, good, solid friendship, companionship, support. That's what you need. Uh, I'm thinking about the Shay moment. You know, Shay's uh, Shay's Shay's something. Uh, but Shay and Sansa. Now Sansa is is mean to her, and the, the, the moments that she gets this new handmaiden out of nowhere doesn't seem to question it, but just uh, all right. But just needs that kind of connection. Uh, and 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 Shay, she picks up on the fact that Shay can do that, and and they form a nice little friendship. Um, friendship's uh, underrated in Game of Thrones. It, it should be there a little bit more. Yeah, Ranger Donald uh, got a great one, and and Mark Kamire there in live chat. Daenerys and Missandei, yeah, uh, very powerful uh, friendship, and, and you can see what happens when it was broken apart and what it did. I, I again, I always say I get the bigger picture conversation around Missandei's death. I really do. Um, uh, problematic on some levels simply because, uh, you know, there wasn't as many uh, POC characters on the show. And so you, you, there's a lot of pressure on, on the ones that are there and you kill one off, you're going to have a reaction. And that's just what it is. Um, but in terms of the story, I really do love the use of that death and what it does to Danny. It, it's a powerful moment because of friendship, friendship. Um, Mark Meyer says, uh, still sad we didn't get the bromance of John and Gendry. Yeah, I would have liked that. Warhammer, uh, long claw, back to back. That would have been good. It would have been good. It's good stuff, Billy. I like that uh, connection, that theme of friendship there. Uh, we got a couple left here. Uh, we're on to season two, episode three, with this call from John. Hey, Kenny Castley Talk. What a great episode to dive into. I had a possibly interesting what if question for this episode. We learn about. Lord Commander Mormont's knowledge of what Craster was doing with his sons, sacrificing them to the White Walkers. At least it's very heavily implied he knows it's the White Walkers. So if we infer that, that knowledge he had, and then we infer from the rest of the series that perhaps a good portion, if not all of the White Walkers we see, are from Craster's sacrifice. So putting those together, if Commander Mormont, rather than sticking to that lame excuse, at least to me, lame excuse of why he kept Craster around if he had instead bitten the bullet, stuck by his guns and gotten rid of Craster prevented him from sacrificing his sons to the white walkers. How much of the events we see in this series, how much of that could have prevented, slowed down, 
what in general would have been the domino effects if Commander Mormont, as soon as he learned about what Craster was doing, stopped him? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. This is great, man. I love Jor Mormont. He's a great character, but he's not without his faults. He's not without his mistakes or not without the tough choices. I think Jean uses uh, you know, the phrase lame excuse. I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think there was hiding behind just what his duty was, turning that eye. I, I, that's why I think Jon Snow can really draw upon that when his conversation with Mance. Uh, I want to fight, um, you know, I want to fight for the side that fights for the living. I, I, that only works because Jon's not lying. He's upset at Mormont, and Mormont's got some great lessons for all of us to learn from. And again, I... That's what I love. I love about any character in any show. Uh, there's a lot going on in Star Wars where a character you love shows up and they seem a little bit different. And the gut reaction is, I don't like this character. They've, li- they've lived. They've learned. They've lost. They've failed. And we should learn about things from them. That's what these stories are for. These stories aren't canon checklists, theories. Did I get my theory right? Checklists. These stories are built upon the themes that end up meaning something to us in our own lives. And Jor Mormont probably wants to do something about it, I, I, I think, from something, you know, the time we spend with the character. It's just, it's hard to go against what their duty is, what their honor is, uh, honor very big, vows very big in the Night's Watch, and he's got to do what he feels is best for... Um, his men. And look, he says it. Craster has kept Benjen, your uncle Benjen, alive. He's kept a lot of us alive. And I think I keep going upon, uh, keep going to this, this idea of compromise. And compromise in our real world and compromise in stories is often viewed as a loss. It's viewed as I, I want my way. I'm not going to get it. I'll get half my way or part of my way. And shrug, therefore I lost. And I think that's probably, you know, Jor Mormont's made a compromise that for many, many years had to be made. I, I don't think he can go about it another way. It's more valuable to him to keep his rangers alive with the help of Craster than maybe some dealing with something long off thing that may or may not be true. Now, if he knows, he says, you know, the wildlings serve crueler gods than us. Does he mean the, the white walkers in that situation? I don't necessarily know. I think he believes. He absolutely believes at the point he's speaking to John, he's already experienced a white in his office uh, we already got, um, what, at the, the, uh, the Shadow Tower or East Watch by the Sea. They've already uh, got three whites. They, they burned the bodies. They had more um, sense of that. So, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't fault them. And, and, and uh, great call, John. Um, Mark, Mark Meyer and Chad here. Uh, also, Mark brings up that Tyrion and Varys, their friendship is a solid uh, thing, going back to the friendship thing. Mark says, that's a great question. How long or how much? Did Commander Mormont know about the walkers? That's like damning, says Mark. And that is true. Jim W. echoes that great call. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, and Ranger Donald says, could the Night Watch survive to range for long periods of time past the crash? Just keep it out of me. That's the question. I think, Mark, you bring up... Um, 
Mark, you, you bring up a great point of like, how much did he know? And that's what I'm trying to get at. There's a gathering storm. Strong, uh, cold winds are rising. Uh, strong winds and cold winds. All the winds. All the winds are rising. Jorm no- Mormont knows that. He keeps saying that. Benjamin, Mark just asked in live chat, makes me wonder how much Benjamin knew about what was beyond the wall. Yeah. How much did they know? We know they believe. In their hearts, they believe. But how many? Jor believes. I think Aemon Targaryen probably believes. Benjamin believes. Does Alistair Thorne believe? Cotter Pike believe? Do all those people believe? I, I don't. I don't know. I go to the moment with um, Benjamin and Tyrion up at the wall. Yorin and Tyrion are having the great conversation, joking around. Good old dour Benjamin comes in. And it starts going at with Tyrion. And Tyrion just flat out makes fun of it. Oh, grumpkins and snarks, right? And and the look on Yorin's face, I don't know. It's like when you have a friend that you love and, and then they say something that you just, you know, you know, I don't want to bring in super current events, but they say something uh, that you're just like, I love you. Oh, I can't follow you down that path. I've always taken that moment from Yorn like that. So I think overall they believe, but it's probably easy to, the Night's Watch is very much about the wildlings and their view their view of the free folk, what they even call the free folk. I think that's more of the story. That's more of the lesson there because that's what factors into Jon Snow. But all this to get to the point of like, you could see for Jon Snow what it cost to try to change the ways of now less than 100 men with over a 1,000-year history, right? Or more. I mean, way more than 1,000, right? Uh, I'm just going on 998, 999 Lord Commanders. He couldn't change. He It cost him his life. It cost him his life. So, Jor, having, Jor Mormont having to make that decision. This might affect us later, but I have to be here in the now. And yeah, um... John uses the term lame excuse. It's almost like he just didn't want to deal with it. And we see that a lot. Hey, there's a there's a girl, a Targaryen girl with dragons on the other side of the world. A lot of the characters did not want to deal with it. And it cost them in, in many ways. So it, look, Jorah pays a price. Jorah pays a... I, I, the, biggest, the biggest mistake Jorah Mormont made, I always say, is Craster's Keep is not too far from the wall. I don't care what map you're looking at. Craster's Keep is not too far from the wall. I don't care how many injured people they have. Put them on your back. Stop at Craster's Keep. Get an apple cider and get on the way. Like they're staying there until everyone heals. Bandage it up. Walk it off, kid. Take a lap. Hit the showers. Let's get out of Craster's Keep. I, I, I always, and that costs Joe Mormont. He couldn't foresee that some of the problems were happening, but the tensions were rising, and and uh, that was the big mistake. That was the big mistake. Anyways, uh, I know I'm not, uh, there's no, to me, to the, the big what if, uh, I'll try to answer directly, uh, but it, it, what I love about this what if is it's just, it, you're going into the heads uh, and you can't really get the answers, man. These, these, unfortunately, these characters aren't real. Um, I think, right? They might be. Maybe Joe Mormont's re- real. James, James Cosmo's real, right? Um, yeah, you just never know, but I, I think damned if you do, damned if you don't. I think you believe, but... <sighs> What's actually there? They're seeing things. They're definitely seeing things. I think Benjamin believes. 
And after you get that white attacking him in the in the office and, you know, and that's why, you know, that's also why he's marching. Though they say, you know, it's mostly, hey, Mance is gathering armor, the army. They're scared of that or they're, they're curious as to what Mance is doing uh, as the king be on the wall. But they know there's something else out there. So give another opportunity. I'm sure Joe Mormont might have uh, slit Crasser's throat if he had known that, hey, some of these... Uh, some of these stolen uh, sons will come back to fight us later in the end. Uh, anyways, uh, last call here, and then I'll take some live questions, and then we'll get on the way here. This is from our pal Eric Monroe. Hey, Cannon Casually Talk. So Season 2, Episode 3 introduces one of my favorite characters of the series, and it's definitely a, a character I don't really love that much in the books, but I love her on the show, and that is Marjorie Tyrell. Absolutely adore her. Love Natalie Dormer. Loved her on the Tudors, where she played Queen Anne Boleyn. So when I found out she was going to be on Game of Thrones, I was very, very excited, and I think she's absolutely terrific, and I especially love her scene with Renly because, you know, she gets right down to it with him. She says, look, I, I, it doesn't matter what you are. We need to have a baby. That's what needs to happen. Whatever we need to do, bring in Loris. We'll do it. Because I believe truly that Marjorie Tyrell was born to play the game. And she was very, very good at it. But I do want to say something, Ken. I have to say this for the record. I do believe everyone at Renly's camp was a traitor because Stannis Baratheon was the one true king. We're going to keep that Stannis fire burning here, all right? Here at Casterly Talk. We represent Stannis Baratheon. You're just going to have to live with it. Thank you, Eric, for that call. Uh, yeah, looking at uh, Season 2, uh, Episode 3, uh, We this actually, we, we will be talking about this here. And in fact, I will say, we're playing catch-up on questions, but these last two questions uh, are for episodes already in the can. So uh, you will have not have seen those episodes yet. Uh, but yeah, Marjorie Tyrell, can't wait to talk a little bit more about her. Uh, yeah, Natalie Dormer is great. Is yeah, and this is a character age difference, as with a lot of characters aged up from the books because well yeah you kind of have to um, and you get this great performer who comes in and just brings life. Oberyn Martell, man, uh, you know uh, Pedro Pascal. That's that's exactly he took a character. That I I do like the Red Viper in the books, but on the show, pff, Eon's better. Eon's different. Renly Bar- Baratheon's an example of, of someone you could spend more time with. Rob Stark. Shay, um, you know, Sibyl Kikili, uh, Kikili comes in and just, uh, you know, t- makes that character her own. Uh, everyone did, but but for the characters on the show that, are, that pop a little bit more than they do in the book, it's because these performers come in and just know what they're doing with the role, what they're doing with the lines, what they're doing with their point of view. And, and Marjorie Tyrell, that great moment. Uh, do you want to be the queen? Do you want to be a queen? No, I want to be the queen. It's, it just says it all. And she's able to pull it off. I love, too, uh, Natalie Dormer. Uh, Natalie Dormer said uh, in, in an interview, and it's in it's in Fire Cannot Kill Dragon. I'm just going to end up spoiling all the great gems from this book. I, I apologize. Read it if, if you guys haven't had the chance yet. She said she, you know, number one, wanted off the show. Um wanted off the show and they, they kind of said one more year, Julian Glover wanted off the show one more year. So they send her off. Um, and Natalie Dormer said something I really loved about this. She just, you know, she, she was bested by Cersei, but she wasn't outsmarted. Uh, she, 
was in a position she could not change necessarily. Some things she, I think she was outsmart, outsmarted maybe at times along the way, outplayed, not outsmarted maybe. But in her final moments, Marjorie was right. Something's wrong. Cersei's not here. We got to go. She was right. And so she might have been bested, but she didn't necessarily lose from a certain point of view. Marjorie Tyrell is a great character. She, again, comes in season two. It's, it's crazy. This is why I really love season two just a lot. I love it much more than I did when it first hit in 2012. It has the impossible task on expanding a show past a perfect first season. Perfect first season. Small budget and all, or smaller budget and all. Season two has to take that and, and, and grow it. And you have to, you have a lot of pressure and, and faith on Stannis Baratheon, good old dour Stannis. And then comes in, you, you got Marjorie Tyrell. And you, you could have, you could have played Marjorie Tyrell as some sort of, um, you know, sex pot just trying to climb her way up, wants to be the queen. Never was approached with that. Never was approached with that. It it, it is so much, there is a warmth there too. I believe the stuff with her and Sansa, the whole porridge face conversation and everything. Marjorie has, uh, she can go back and forth. And what, what is sincere, you might never know. Is it sincere that she goes and helps uh, or speaks to the orphans? Maybe. But I th- in that moment it is. She has the ability to believe. I love watching that character work. In that moment, she's stepping over a river of crap to get into the orphanage and, and is using it to pump up Joffrey. Oh, you know, your father died at the Battle of Blackwater Bay, but, you know, that was when Joffrey saved us all. She's using it. She's smart. She's smart. But I think in that moment, she's connecting one-on-one, and it's not a lie, and it's real. And that is why she was such a threat. And, oh, hey, look at that. Sir Thomas the Tall in chat. We got to get Thomas back on the uh, call here. Uh, you know, buff up your head, Thomas. Come on, clean it. Let's get on camera here soon. Uh, the moment of realization for her is one of my personal highlights of season six. Yeah, that's great stuff. And she was playing the part of a game long before most realized the pieces were on the board. She's there from the start. She's there from the start. Uh, she's there for family. Uh, and, I, and and also, I love, but I love the moments when there is a genuine fear or concern. Some stuff going on with Joffrey. Uh, She's smart enough in that scene with Joffrey and the crossbow. Such a great Marjorie scene. She knows she cannot control him uh, in any uh, any other way, but kind of letting the moment play out, letting him connecting with him on on a violence level, right? Like appreciating his violence is is that is how she has to approach Joffrey in that moment, and it works. Yeah, Mark Kamara says when Elena, Queen of Thorns, is your grandmother, you learn how to play. All the games, yeah. As Diana Riggs said, I was good. I was damn good. Yeah, Marjorie's a great character. And going back to my my rambly um, my rambly conversation here about season two, we're still in the middle of discussing it. Um, but this is where it just really succeeds when you go back. It takes it has the time and it's the benefit of the time to go back uh, and, and have these small moments. The Tyrion, uh, excuse me, Tywin and Arya stuff comes to mind. 
But Marjorie, uh, you got Stannis, you got Melisandre, you got Davos, but then Marjorie shows up and it could have been flat. Like I said, it, it could have just been a boop, 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 boop. I'm a sex pot. I, I want to be the queen. I'll work my magic. But she is a rival for Cersei. There's depth there. There's a sincerity there. There's a danger on her own. She just maybe lacks that one bit of killer instinct. That's why I love when Cersei reminds her when the whole, you know, Reigns of Castamere explanation scene. Don't you ever uh, call me sister again, right? Um, that's real fear for Marjorie. She lacks that. And maybe in the end that's what gets her. Not, not necessarily her final moments, but just her... Uh, not having that, literally not having that killer instinct. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, 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 it's going to be fun focusing on on uh, the themes and the lessons of Marjorie Tyrell going forward. Sir Thomas Tall says, yeah, she had a good heart. That was her downfall. Yeah, the thing about uh, about Marjorie, she, she, knowing how to play the game is something we're going to say because it's Game of Thrones. But knowing how to survive in that world... Um, that that's uh, that is a it's a patriarchal society to say the least. Uh, it is not you're not in a good position being a a, uh, a young woman in this world, particularly of a, a highborn house. I mean, you're you're probably better off than a lowborn house, but you're you're bred to be a pawn from the start. What what does uh, Baelish say to her when we first meet her? She's talking about you know my marriage. Uh, you seem to be rather interested in my marriage, and Baelish says your your marriage is rather interesting. Interesting. Um, anytime a, a young woman is married, it's it's interesting in this land because it's it's a pawn, it's a piece, your piece. Marjorie knew that. Marjorie still got hers. I love <laughs> I love the stuff with Sansa talking about. Uh, I think it's what with Tyrion, like she's going to have to marry Tyrion. Ba- basically, Sansa and Marjorie talking about sex. And uh, Sansa's like, Whoa, where, where, where'd you learn all this? Did your uh, did your mother teach you? And Marjorie's like, yeah, yeah, my mother taught me, sweet summer child. Yeah, that's the way. Marjorie went out. She got hers. She she made her climb. She got to where you uh, got to where she wanted to go. You know, and it, she died. She died. She didn't win, but uh, and I think she would have been a queen. I think if she she. Had a if 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 Renly had, had sat on the throne, I think her her and uh, Renly would have been an absolute power couple, and it would have been good for the realm. So she's a fascinating character, fascinating character, Marjorie Tyrell. Uh, there's a reason she was married to three kings. Yes, indeed. Uh, Cersei said that several times. Says Jim W. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there you go. Did I handle that okay, Thomas? Talking about the birds and the bees with Sansa and Marjorie. I was as uncomfortable as Sansa. Well, I'll have to. If we get married, I'll have to. Oh, yes, you'll have to. Uh, yeah, Natalie Dormer is great. Uh, absolutely love the character. So that is uh, our catch-up on Q&A questions. We'll do this uh, again. Uh, I'll still be probably bulk taping some of the shows, which is why I do say if you have a call about a specific episode... Now's the time. Call into the Anchor app. Go to anchor.fm slash casterly talk. Leave a message and say, hey, uh, I'm so-and-so. I'm calling about season two, episode eight. I'm calling about season three, episode three. And I'll get to it. Um, I'll get to I'll, uh, I'll get to it. I, just, I have to kind of bulk tape a little bit more now. But your calls, going back to the Daily Thrones days, have, have been what have made this show so great 
and so fun to do. Not great like I think it's great, but it's been fun to, to uh, you guys make it something more than it is uh, by, uh, by coming in there. Thomas says, I handled the birds and the bees. As Mark says, the little birds and the bees. Thomas says, I handled it beautifully. The, the question is, does Christy McGee think I handled it beautifully? That's the question. That's the question. Jim W., thank you for uh, live chatting and saying uh, some great stuff, great questions here. So that's the story uh, for right now. Been a lot of fun hanging out with all of you. We did this live. We did this live. We'll do it again. We'll do it again. Uh, don't forget to follow me at Ken Napsock. Go to KenNapsock.com to get information on all the things I do, including if you want to support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash uh, I'll say this. Oh, wait. Oh, great. Kristen McGee says, I handled everything beautifully. We're going to be all right, children. We're going to be all right. Uh, I will say this. Very shortly, very shortly, Casterly Talk will be moving to its own YouTube channel, um, kind of building a foundation for something else that's coming. Uh, so it will no longer just be on my channel. The podcast will remain the same. But... Uh, we will be heading over to uh, our own YouTube channel, which means we'll have to build it up from scratch. No subscribers, no 4,000 hours to get monetized yet, all those kind of wonderful things. But we're going over there, I believe, as we, as we head towards House of the Dragon, which which will be a thing. Uh, don't forget, at some point, we're going to see that show. Uh, we're going to have Casually Talk kind of be on its own on YouTube here, but remain where it is on the podcast. All right? That is it for all, my friends. For now, for all, for all, for now. It's late on a Friday night for me. We'll see you. Bye.